Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. We're excited to be welcoming uh, Dr. Sean Chakrabadi today, who is a interventional cardiologist by training and is currently serving as the VP of Medical Affairs and General Manager of Chronic Venous Therapies at Inari Medical. As one of our first um, guests with a background in medical devices, we're really excited to talk about what does it take to bring a medical device asset to market, really thinking about changing the treatment paradigm in some really critical disease states and, and those that um, really have a, a really wide population. Historically, we've talked a lot about rare diseases, but here we're talking about huge populations of people that we're, we're trying to meet the needs of. So really targeting that unmet medical need um, and also thinking about what does it take to be a physician leader in a growing organization where Sean's had a great opportunity to go from clinic into the organization and, and industry. So Sean, welcome to our show. We're really excited to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Really excited to be here and really very much looking forward to our discussion today. So to start us off, we'd love to hear maybe a little bit more about your background and in particular um, about what does it take to be a physician leader in a medical device company in particular? I know you've had some experiences prior to Inari in the device world as well. Um, both organizations that you've worked with have really tried to change the treatment paradigm for patients. And so we'd love to hear a little bit more about um, what these organizations are doing and your role as a physician in driving that change? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, great, great question, Kim. And I think, um, as you mentioned, uh, if a lot of your previous episodes were focused on sort of rare disease, pharma world, I think devices really, um, medical device in particular, really keys in on the idea of um, creating a technology that, that addresses an unmet need. And I think um, coming from the world of clinical practice and bedside medicine now to technology, uh, really helps sort of bridge an understanding of where the big swings are. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate um, in that I've gotten to work for a couple device companies that have been very much paradigm changing, not just adding a widget to a toolbox or adding a Me Too technology, but rather trying to change completely treatment paradigms. And in one world, and when we first met you and I um, at a company called Abiumet, a medical device company focused on mechanical circulatory support. We were taking the old idea that a patient who goes into cardiogenic shock is sort of now in a morbid part of their care pathway that is often unsalvageable. And that company sought to create a non-permanent uh, temporary implantable pump that would bridge that patient to a place of heart recovery. So going away from the idea of, hey, you know, this heart's no good. It's kicked out. Let's talk about transplant. Let's talk about full support permanently to now a world where a small, innovative, and simple device could bridge that patient to recovery to keep their own heart. And that's paradigm changing and requires a big lift, which I'm sure we'll get into. And and now, at Inari Medical, um, totally different device, totally different disease state, but same idea. You know, for the longest time, we've been treating um, venous thromboembolism a certain way, anticoagulants or lytic therapy, and creating a simple device, a simple solution to um, 
get away from the idea of a systemic medical therapy for this disease state to now thrombus removal and what effects that could have on the patient short and long term. Um, it's, it's a, again, a paradigm shifting sort of big swing, big unmet need. And so um, having context, having come from the medical side, it's, it's helpful, you know, to point out where uh, these, these sort of big unmet needs can be. I think you brought up a lot of really important points here, Sean. And one of them that really resonates with me is what does it take when you're actually in practice to want to adopt some of these therapies? So both at Abiumad and Inari, you're rethinking the actual problem at hand or what's actually going on with these patients. And you're saying, all right, well, something about the current standard isn't fully addressing the issue. And we've known for decades that an anticoagulant or whatever it might be could help this patient. But as a physician and from your own practice, I imagine you've seen many patients where you either feel dissatisfied with the option, but I would also surmise that it's a little bit scary to say, all right, well, I'm going to try something that goes against the status quo and goes against decades of research and goes against what everyone's trained me on through you know all of my years of training. And so can you talk me through both when you're in clinical practice and now really as the innovator on the other side, what does it really take for you to think about trying a new technology in a patient, whether it's a person human or in a study or speaking to other physicians about why they should adopt something that that is new? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that there are themes really on both sides of that coin that are common. Um, when it comes to, in particular, device technology, um, there are kind of, I think, three things that help physicians turn the tide on doing what they've always done before to to shifting that mindset to really explore how technology can improve a disease state. So um, the first we've already talked about a bit, which is this kind of focusing on big unmet needs area, right? So uh, when I was in practice and now even on the medical device side, no interest in creating the 20th coronary stent with a slight iterative improvement, right? Or the fifth atherectomy device, you know? Um, I think physicians are the same way. Once they see a technology's matured is a good solution for something, then the barrier to change is, it's this big chasm that's difficult to overcome. Um, but in your day-to-day -day practice and in the cath lab and in the OR, uh, there are, you know, it's intuitive. You know when you're using something that, gee, this hasn't been updated in 30 years, the patient outcomes have been the same. It isn't keeping up with other disease states. Um, structural heart's a great example of that, you know, where uh, it was apparent that um, interventional technologies improving minimally invasive ways were emerging to do this surgery that used to be reserved only for certain people who could undergo a big time cardiac surgery. And now look what's happened to that field. So that's the first. Um, and then the second, and I've really come to understand this really well in the last few years um, in my time with the NARI is seeing is believing. So uh, both of the technologies that I've um, been fortunate enough to be a part of um, provide the user with a very tangible, visible evidence of the effect that that device is having on the patient. So in the case of a heart pump, a patient goes from dying to not dying anymore, right? And in the case of um, thrombectomy, 
you know, these previous therapies we were talking about, anticoagulation lytics, you would never actually see that that thing, that that ugly clot that was causing a problem for this patient that was going to be left behind in their body for the rest of their lives. And then all of a sudden, with a very simple technology, we started actually extracting these things. And the patients were seeing these big, nasty, ugly snakes that were in their body. And the physicians were seeing them too. And then something clicks right then. You know, um, you know right away that this is something big and this is something that's quite disruptable and can, and can really change things. Um, and then, you know, the third is really, uh, is, is the evidence, is the data. And so um, when confronted with the current state of the state, in, in certain disease states, shock and, and PE are great examples. And you see that over the last 20, 30 years, there hasn't been this big rampant outcomes that we've seen in areas like aortic valve disease or, or heart attacks. That's where I think um, uh, you notice the sort of uh, areas where, where you could really make a difference, make a change with some of that promising early data. So, you know, big unmet needs, um, tangible, visible changes that are obvious to everyone involved, and then good early evidence that you're actually making a difference. Because we definitely now live in a culture where evidence-based medicine is the standard of practice, and um, you know we're not just trying things just to try them. Absolutely. Um, you hit on a lot of really great points there. I want to come back to the evidence piece in a moment, but before we circle back to that point, um, one thing that keeps coming up in my mind as you're describing changing this practice, and in particular, your second point about having like a tangible proof of an impact, um, especially in the cardiology world, and you and I have discussed this in the past as well, there is a difference between the subspecialties in cardiology. So I would love to lean into a little bit to your clinical practice as well, because it sounds like a lot of the big problems that you're solving, both what you're doing at Abiumad and what you're doing at Anari now also target a different type of cardiologist and a different point in the care pathway for a patient. And so what a patient might be seeing with a medical therapy with their traditional cardiologist, you know, now might be something that an interventionalist might be more involved in. And so it's actually changing the care pathway of who's involved in the treatment of these patients as well. And um, which, I find really interesting. would love your thoughts on from a, a medical affairs perspective, because you're educating different segments in the medical community, as well as you know, the different um, subspecialties that have trained different ways over, over these decades. So love for, for your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a great observation, Kim. Um, it's one thing to bring patients along on this journey and say, you used to be treated one way, now you can be treated another. It's one thing to talk to administrators, payers about taking that journey. It's a totally different thing when it comes to your, your customers, your physicians, right? Because in many cases, you're taking the primary intervention for this patient from one type of doctor and moving it to another, right? In the, in the example of cardiogenic shock, um, you may be primarily dealing with um, cardiac intensivists, you know, non-interventional physicians that really manage pressors and, uh, and ICU care to now interventionalist um, who um, who would be doing the primary intervention or perhaps cardiac surgery who previously utilized things like ECMO, et cetera, and moving its interventionalist. In the thrombectomy space, 
Um, PE patients were usually managed by a milieu of different types of physicians, ER docs, pulmonologists, hematologists. They still are. But now we've introduced a new player into that into that mix, the interventional cardiologist. In many cases, the interventional radiologist. In many cases, vascular surgeons do these procedures. So how do you do that? Um, without having anyone feel like they're being excluded or um, don't have a voice in the process. And I think that uh, from a medical affairs uh, perspective, the, the answer sounds simple, which is be collaborative, include all stakeholders, include them both in the evidence generation and the device development and the um, uh, shared outcomes that you produce. Um, but I'll tell you, it's a, it's a difficult dance when it comes to doing this in the real world. Uh, and it's something that I still, um, I won't say struggle with, but still am challenged by, uh, even today. Yeah. No, I think it's, com you know, completely reasonable. And I don't know that there, there is a perfect answer out there, whether you're looking at traditional pharma or medical device. And, you know, from our conversations and, and my own experiences, I've definitely seen medical device, medical affairs as a, a really unique, um, a unique concept to think about because you're in the position where you're not just speaking about the modality and the science and educating on why this therapy is better than this one, but you're also hands-on training on the device itself. And you brought up a great point recently when we spoke that, you know, there's rarely a day that goes by that you're not actually working with your engineering team to think about how to make the devices better for patients and so and for the the providers that are using the devices themselves and so i would love to hear a little bit more from when you transitioned into being a physician leader in a medical device company how did you even think about that transition and then how are you day-to-day -day using what you've learned in clinical practice and translating that into kind of the the best outcomes for the, the organization yeah kim um you know as you know i'm someone that relatively early career made this sort of transition from clinical bedside medicine um, to practice. So I get this question a lot, a lot from colleagues, people interested in sort of getting involved in technology or, or industry. Um, and I'll tell you, it, it's a tough one. Um, the thing about uh, being a physician, particularly a subspecialist or a proceduralist where you have a really long training pathway is it kind of becomes your primary identity. You know, I always used to say, um, it was really easy back in the day to tell people what I did at a cocktail party, right? They'd be like, what do you do? I'd say, I'm a cardiologist. And that would pretty much be it. They would clearly know what that means. <laughs> Ends the conversation. <laughs> really comfortable and anodyne about that. You know, they can picture what that is. Uh, and it was also really easy to feel good about your day, right? After a day of seeing patients in the office or the wards or in the cath lab, if you didn't have complications, if you, um, if you uh, saw a lot of patients and and got a lot of smiles and hugs. You, you can hang your hat on a good body of work and sleep really well, assuming your pager isn't going off, right? And so that's a lot to give up um, because you have to um, really sort of think about those same wins and then scaling them and how you can do that in this relatively short career path that we have, right? What do we have? We have 30, 40, 50 years to make an impact in our lives um, on these patients. So I think that certain people self-select themselves and sort of get comfortable with discomfort um, and our, the idea of coloring outside the lines and how can I impact more patients on the longer arc of my career. And I dealt with those 
identity changes head on early on, you know. Um, uh, however, um, you know, when I talk to folks about this, my primary advice is kind of get comfortable with discomfort right away and sort of open your mind to how your particular skill set can benefit patients on this tremendously big scale. You know, one thing about medical affairs leaders is they're um, a good medical affairs leader is critical, as you know, to the success of a device or, or farm company. So there's a really important role there. It's not, um, it's not something that you dabble in or dip your toe in the water on. It's something you dive into. Um, so you also ask, you know, how does direct patient care sort of inform and optimize what I do in my day-to-day job? And I would say there's something about um, having been in the patient care side that adds a really critical context to sort of everything you do. Um, there's a certain perspective you get from taking direct care of patients. It's hard to describe, but it sort of involves this this deep empathy and understanding of needs from a patient perspective. It also um, involves familiarity with healthcare delivery and the nuances of that and patient journeys. Um, I'd almost compare it to like speaking a language, right? Um, you can functionally survive in an environment where you don't speak the language, but there's a lot lost in terms of context. I think it's very much similar. Um, so uh, my experiences impact things like design considerations. They impact go-to-market strategies. They impact clinical research plans. There is really nothing that isn't touched by the, having been on sort of that side. It's a really great point. And, you know, on the other side of it, would love to also hear you know, having come from clinical practice would have been the areas that have been most surprising for you to have to learn on the job. So in your intro, we were kind of talking about you play a critical role currently relative to medical affairs, but you're also the the general manager for the chronic venous business, which means you have a much broader purview in an entire line of therapies that, that an RA is working on. And as a physician leader, I assume, I could be wrong here, so please correct me, that you were not actively trained on the business principles of go-to-market strategies for a new offering and a new asset and all of the elements that go into your current job description. So how are you thinking about filling those gaps around you um, and really upskilling yourself so that you can be the best in this kind of a role? Yeah, really good question, Kim. And you're right. I didn't do formal business training earlier in my career. Um, uh, you know, public health work, but certainly wasn't um, well-versed in a lot of these concepts now. And now they're my primary job, as you mentioned, <laughs> you know, interfacing with R&D, upstream and downstream marketing, product development and strategy. Um, so um, a couple, couple things I would say in answer to your question. One is um, you have to kind of enjoy it. I do. So I feel like I'm almost in another training program, another residency here in these early years in, in industry um, and learn every day. And um, the sort of interactions that I just described, interfacing with upstream marketing or working on strategy or interfacing with the business development team and M&A team about other technologies that are out there. I love it. I think it's a ton of fun, probably because it's all new learnings for me. So I think... I chose to join companies that were not necessarily in the startup phase, but a little more mature in terms of the teams they've developed. And that was probably good luck, but it resulted in an environment where um, I could safely insert myself into projects 
and learn from really great leaders around me, commercial leaders, marketing leaders, um, business and strategy leaders. And gee, um, you know, five-ish years in now, and I still feel like I'm, I'm learning every day, you know? Um, you, you can't read a manual on something like investor relations, and you can't read a manual on things like go-to-market strategies in the med device world. You really have to experience it. You really need to um, get in the weeds, you know, work with the regulatory team, figure out all those sort of variables and pathways from an idea from a prototype to actually going to market and patients successfully. And um, what's been great about uh, my experience so far is I've had probably dozens and dozens of case studies and how this is done with different products, right? So as opposed to maybe an MBA where you do a case study, um, it's really on the job, real world learning. Um, and there's really no substitute, Kim, for time. I'm learning that. There's no substitute for, for time and immersion and, and learning from those that have done it before you. I can definitely appreciate that for sure. One thing I want to come back to, Sean, that you've been alluding to in a couple of different fashions, but um, you also mentioned earlier around evidence being a really critical factor to change the treatment paradigm. Relative to some of the points you just made, I think you've also been incredibly fortunate, and this is a little bit different in medical device than it is in pharma, to experience product launches. And often in traditional pharma, you could work a decade in industry and not get to the point of a successful launch and you know not see that through whether the data falls through or the launch itself you run out of funding there, there's all of these issues that we know in biotech and pharma just don't always play out to truly give that experience but in medical device there's a little bit more opportunity for that and you've had some really great experiences to see that in your career already um, one of the things that i'd love to dig into a little bit or about those launches are what have we learned about launching the assets relative to the evidence that we're bringing into market and how are you talking to the physician community about it as well as um, hearing a little bit more about real world evidence and what you've been able to think about post-market that's changed the paradigm because I think medical devices are much further along on that front than traditional pharma and biotech and, and we all have a lot to learn there. Yeah, Kim, you know, um, you're absolutely right. I've, I've been fortunate to see um, complete product cycles, even in, in two to three years, not complete cycles, but at least, you know, concept to market. And and that's a um, good amount of good luck and, and probably goes back to some of the things we talked about before about what sort of problems you want to tackle and how you can be successful. So I think um, probably... To distill down to a simple concept, and then I'll, I'll get a bit into more of the specifics to your question, you really need to know what you have in medical device. Do you know what I mean? You um, And you can't have blinders on, and you, you know early on it's your baby, and you really got to believe in it, right? But at some point, you need to listen to the evidence and the effects that device has in the real world. So um, you mentioned post-market data, post-market surveillance. And what that really does is it allows a medical leader to understand the real-world impact of their device. Um, that's distinct from pre-market performance, right? You all understand that preclinical data um, and even clinical data in the early phases in the device world, which can be variable, are, are often best-case scenario type looks at it. They're often very controlled, highly trained users, right? Controlled and trained environments. Um, 
So, uh, it, you know, it's important to see how your device will perform in the real world in the hands of the everyman. And that's where I think post-market data can be really helpful. Um, so philosophically, I think any medical leader wants to know what they have. Um, now, what's interesting in the contrast with, with maybe the pharma world is there are different requirements, so to speak, on what happens to your device once it's brought to market. You know, a lot of it depends on the inherent complexity and, and risk of the device. Um, and some companies, you know, you could take the approach of doing the bare minimum. Um, the, the EC, the EU is a bit more rigorous in terms of um, bringing more complex devices to market and then more formal post-market surveillance plans that are commensurate to the risk of the device. So for class three devices, for instance, you can expect a pretty high bar in terms of post-market data you need to collect. Um, and with including post-market clinical follow-up studies, right? It's, it, it may be that for your device, you literally need to create a registry and get investigators and put that resource in to, to surveil it. On the other end of the coin, you have um, class two less risky devices where in the U.S., you know, if you use a 510K pathway to get to market, there may not be a required reason to follow post-market data. Um, but I think the best way to protect against, you know, poor outcomes, suboptimal performance, or in the worst case, something like an FDA warning letter, you know, which we, we know some some situations there that are that have occurred that maybe were avoidable. Um, it means getting smart. And I think utilizing things like product registries, user surveys, focus groups. In 2023, we even have the ability to leverage potentially social media and getting experienced people in the room to build complaint systems and have a solid SOP can save you a ton of headache. Um, so sort of a long-winded answer, uh, Kim, I know, but uh, it's something I'm pretty passionate about. I think you can do the bare minimum to get your device to market and keep it there. But uh, for these sort of paradigm shifting technologies that you and I are talking about, that's not nearly enough. And I don't think I'd want to be part of an organization that didn't do a lot more than the bare minimum to prove out their technology and how it benefits patients um, as sort of a primary goal. Yeah. And, you know, I think to, to summarize a couple of those points, there's obviously medical device, the regulatory requirements around it, the safety surveillance side. But I know the piece that you've been most passionate about has really been the strategic benefit of what this data can do. And it's, you know, it's interesting both from a um, physician adoption and understanding um, perspective. It's also great for product development and the next iteration of what comes after this and understanding which patients are going to benefit most. Um, from a, a growth standpoint, it's also great for, for label expansion and, and things like that. So we'd love to hear a little bit more from the strategic angle. How have you really thought about leveraging real world evidence for the growth of the business kind of above and beyond what you know, a smart organization should probably be doing from a you know, regulatory side? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this kind of fits into a big tenet of um, of how I think a, a device company should really think in terms of mindset, which is sort of no small plans, right? So um, a lot of what we talked about before, sort of bare minimum in terms of evidence generation can get you sort of early adopters, you know, true believers, uh, innovators, uh, but that necessarily benefit 
the number of patients that you could potentially benefit, right? So when you think about that lofty goal, well, gee, that requires things like changing the standard of care, right? Shifting guidelines and um, winning over the skeptics. Um, you mentioned earlier um, some of these new technologies shift the primary user, the interface, the physician that utilizes them. And that's not going to happen unless, again, you can create a, a, a shift in standard of care. And so that's where um, being really aggressive in terms of your clinical affairs strategy um, can be beneficial. Well, no, look, you got to be smart about it. You have to um, uh, create a clinical affairs strategy that isn't bulky, isn't onerous, isn't going to take a ton of time, and isn't going to suck up all of your resource, right? Because you need to survive as a company. But um, again, get smart people in the room, um, collaborate with your uh, medical leadership that you're working with, um, design smart, lean studies that help you generate the evidence you need to not only show that the device is safe and effective, but that it is superior to other technologies or other modes of um, providing this care to this disease state, and then see that sort of sea change occur. Excellent. So the last thing, Sean, that I'd love to touch on uh, before we close out is really just to hear from your perspective, what advice you might have to somebody else who is considering a path to physician leadership, specifically in a, a medical device organization, whether it's you know a resident or a fellow who's not sure that they want to go directly into to practice and they want to make a shift to industry or, you know, we, we spoke a lot about the difference between pharma and medical device. Um, you know, somebody who might have spent, you know, a decade or two in pharma or biotech and, and they're interested in, in some kind of a shift. What kind of advice would you give to them if they're considering this kind of a path? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Kim. And it's something that I get asked again, often from colleagues, young trainees and other folks. Um, so I mentioned earlier sort of this um, being comfortable with discomfort idea. And I think that um, we, we need to really uh, reflect on our goals, right, um, as physician leaders. And once you've established sort of what you want to do in your career path and um, creating opportunities uh, for yourself um, by um, staying interested, collaborating with colleagues, uh, both in industry and in other areas of medicine, um, and uh, really being open-minded to the idea of how you can impact your patients is super important. I think that uh, there are opportunities to, to dive into the world a bit without a full transition away from medicine. I think there, there are many different avenues with which to do that, whether it's in consulting environments, you could really start on the R&D side, um, you could explore sabbaticals and spend time in a pharma company or a med device company. Um, but at some point, um, really progressing that world might require a bit of a burn the boats mentality and really diving in. Um, the other thing that I really stress to people is patience, you know, because I think a lot of physicians expect, you know what, if I, uh, if I jump to industry, I'll get a big leadership position right away in a big company and I'll just know how to do the job. Right. And, um, as I mentioned before, it feels almost like another training program for me. And um, I think uh, giving people that expectation uh, is really important. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of ways that uh, physicians can impact 
um, our world. And when you think about scale, uh, being a leader in, in medical device or in pharma is a really great way to, to make that impact over, as I mentioned before, you know, the number of years you have to do so. Absolutely. Sean, it's also clear that your passion and humility are part of the reason you've been incredibly successful and will continue to serve you in doing so. Um, so very much appreciate you giving your insights today and, and working through everything around you know, the medical device industry and um, what it really stands, stands out in this space and looking forward to seeing what comes next for you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kim. And thank you for doing this series. I think it's really great to, um, to get this out there for folks and I'm honored to be a part of it. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at ssistrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review. Mm-hmm.